Well, you can have a seat. It is good to be back in person in worship this morning, uh, preaching to an, uh, a very nearly empty room. There were uh, a few people here from the praise team in the sound booth, but a, a very nearly empty room, it's weird. Um, it's, uh, Steve did it for a long time. I don't know how he did it. It's weird. Um, and so I'm glad uh, to have people looking back at me uh, as I'm looking out at you. Um, and uh, I don't know how many of you know this. I, I know some of you, we've had conversations, but uh, some of you at least know that Sarah and I became foster parents earlier this year. Uh, we've had two foster daughters living with us for nine months now. Uh, Izzy has been with us longer than that, actually, but uh, her three-year-old sister, Nikki, moved in with us in February. Um, you know, February, about a month before the world closed, <laughs> and there was no school to send kids to anymore. Uh, we, we doubled, effectively, the number of children in our home, uh, and then had to keep them in our home forever and ever and ever, for like 27 years, it feels like, right? And so, uh, that's how long it's been, I think, uh, and there have been a few times this year, just, just a few, when the only thing we could think to do is pray. <laughs> the only thing left to us was just I don't know what to do, God, but I'm sure you do, so do something. <laughs> and, uh, and whenever it's time to pray, uh, Nikki is really catching on. She, she actually loves to pray. And honestly, as I diagnose it, I think it's that she loves to talk, and she loves when everyone is listening to her, and so prayer really is the perfect thing for her because she's talking, everyone else is listening to what she's saying and she loves it, and her prayers are insanely adorable. I mean, like, it's hard to stay mad at her because she's so cute, but especially when she prays, it's just adorable. Just stream of consciousness stuff, but three-year-old stream of consciousness stuff. That's hilarious. Like, don't know where she came up with it. Why is she thinking of that? Um, just this week, uh, and, and I, I know that this is not an exhaustive, exhaustive list at all, just things that I remember. Just this week, uh, she thanked God for her friends, which is, that's cool, uh, her soccer ball, okay, uh, her teacher, her bed, her hair, uh, her dinner, her feet, uh, her pajamas, just to name a few, just stream of consciousness, looking around the room kind of stuff, or something happened to her earlier that day, and she remembered it all day long and carried it into prayer and thanked God for it. It's just really cool. And I, I discovered this week, I mean, I guess I knew this, but looking around this week, I'm not the only one with a kid in my house that prays this way. Um, so I want to share with you some of the best kid prayers that I've heard this week, asked around, looked around online, and these are the best ones I've heard. Thank you, God, for sending me to the right planet. That's a good one, right? Because, you know, oxygen is, is nice. Uh, please help us to work hard at school and that dad will work hard at work and that mom will do whatever she does during the day. <laughs> I like that one. Uh, please make my parents understand that if I don't eat salad, I do better in school. <laughs> Dear God, can you get me a smartphone? Because Santa forgot. <laughs> That's a good one. Confusing roles a little bit, I guess. Dear God, I need you to make my mom not allergic to cats. I really want a cat, and I don't want to have to ask my mom to move out. <laughs> Uh, dear God, mom says you have a reason for everything. What's the reason for broccoli? <laughs> like very direct, like Job going to God to be like, hey, what's going on here? And then finally, this is my favorite one. Please forgive me for hiding my sister's favorite doll. And also, please don't tell her where it is. <laughs> 
So here's something I've learned as a parent, as a youth minister, uh, spending time around kids of all ages, teaching them about prayer. uh, I've learned this earth-shattering truth. The things you decide to pray about show what's important to you. And I know that's like crazy, right? Super deep, right? The things that you decide to pray about show what's important to you. And we, because we don't usually take time to pray for things that we don't care about, uh, things that don't matter to us. We, uh, maybe we should, but I mean, we don't pray about those things. And, and Jesus is kind of that way too. Um, as we're walking through this series in, in John 14, 15, 16, and today in John chapter 17, we come to this part where uh, it's the longest prayer uh, that, that, we, that we have recorded from Jesus uh, in anywhere in the Bible. Uh, in John chapter 17, it's the whole chapter. It's 26 verses long, and it's filled with things that are important to Jesus. I mean, Jesus prays this prayer right before he's uh, headed to the cross, right before uh, the the series of events that lead him to the cross. Um, And as he's praying this prayer, he is he's bringing all these things to God that are that are important to him in this moment. And we tend to think of prayer as this private moment. Uh, It's prayer is just between me and and God. It's it's just the two of us in prayer. But in this moment, Jesus prays so that his disciples can hear what he's praying about. It's important to Jesus that the disciples uh, get, get this glimpse of what's important to him in this moment. They get this glimpse of, what's, uh, of what his relationship is like with his father. They, they get to hear about his past and his future and about his mission and, and the things that he views as his successes in, in his ministry. They hear about his concerns and his hopes for the future. And so I want to read the whole prayer first. I know it's long. And then I want to walk through it uh, and kind of discover some of the important things that that, that we learn, the things that are important to Jesus. So here we go. It's John chapter 17. We're going to read the whole chapter. Uh, After Jesus said this, and that's that's after Jesus said the things in the three chapters previous to this one, the things we've been in this Uncertain Road sermon series for the last couple of months. After he said those things, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, The hour has come. Glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. I've revealed to you, I've revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine, and glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they're still in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by the name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to to destruction so that scripture would be fulfilled. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. 
I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be sanctified. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for all those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want, you to be, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you've given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. So Jesus focuses his prayer on three groups of people. He prays for himself first at the very beginning, and then he prays for his disciples, and then he prays for all the believers who who will come after the disciples. Uh, He prays for us, for, for the church throughout the years. And, and the first thing that stands out as important to Jesus, as, as we look through this prayer and, and, and think, what is it that is important to Jesus? The first thing that stands out is, is that both he and the Father are glorified. Jesus prays uh, that, that God may be glorified by his actions, and then he prays that, that God would glorify him in turn. It's actually the only thing Jesus asks God for himself throughout this entire prayer, that the Father would glorify him. And that, that makes us recoil a little bit because it, it almost feels a little self-seeking. It almost feels like make me famous kind of a thing in, in this culture that we live in. You know, glorify me and make me like a, a social media influencer. But that's not what Jesus is about. It, th- this is about the glory. Uh, that th- It's not a matter of status on earth. He, he points out that uh, he's brought God glory by his obedience. That Jesus is, is, by finishing the work God has sent him to do, he brings glory to God. Um, and his only desire for himself in this moment is to be with the Father again. When Jesus is saying, to, to glorify me, he's, he's saying, return me to the glory I had before I came to earth. I, I, think, I think Paul's description in Philippians 2 is, is helpful in this moment, where he says, Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And that's what Jesus is asking for in his prayer. He's asking for the Father to return him to, the place in, to his place in heaven once his work on earth is finished. 
Jesus has glorified God in his life. He, he will continue to glorify God in his death and resurrection. And as he turns his attention to his disciples and eventually to the church in this prayer, his first concern holds throughout. His first concern that God would be glorified in his life extends to his disciples, that God would be glorified in the life that they choose to live. And it extends to us that God would be glorified in the life that, that we choose to live, that, that we seek to honor God in, in all of our worship and in all of the things that we say and in all of the things that we do in the world. Jesus wants his church to be a place where, where people are invited to touch the glory of God. The glory of God that, that is made accessible to us through the work of Jesus, through his work on the cross and, and, and conquering death and, and, and the curtain being torn in half where we now have access. The glory of God that's accessible, Jesus wants the church to be a place where people can come and touch God's glory and, and have that access. He, he, wants, he wants it to be a place where people can be changed by God's glory, where people can take God's glory with them out into the world and show them what God is like the way Jesus showed us what God is like. So we should constantly be asking ourselves this question, is God glorified here? Every decision we make, everything we do in the church, does this bring glory to God? Is God glorified here? Is this the thing that would lift God up or is this something that lifts me up? That's always a question we have to be asking. Everything we say, everything we do because glorifying God is important to Jesus. It's the very first thing he, he, he thinks of as he prays. The only thing he asks for him, himself on his own behalf to, that, that we would glorify God and that God would glorify Jesus by returning him to his place in heaven. And then we move through this prayer and Jesus turns his attention to his followers, to his disciples first and then uh, eventually to the church who will come after them. And, and, and the, the first thing that is important to Jesus as he turns his attention to his followers is protection. Protection for his disciples who are left here on earth after Jesus is glorified, after Jesus ascends to heaven, his disciples are still here and, and Jesus prays for their protection. I, I want you to notice the verbs that he uses when he's describing his disciples. These are the people who have obeyed your word, the ones who have accepted the words you gave me, the ones who believed you've sent me. The disciples weren't perfect. I mean, we know this walking through, uh, we kind of use them as punching bags sometimes walking through, like, oh, how could they misunderstand so badly? But they did obey and they accepted and they believed. And that sets them apart from just about everyone else Jesus encountered throughout his ministry. They are the ones who obeyed and accepted and believed. And Jesus is clear that he's not praying for the world. He, in this moment, he is not praying for those who have not obeyed and accepted and believed. Um, it's not that he doesn't care about the world. I mean, just a few chapters back in, in John's gospel, we read that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. God loves the world. We, that's well established throughout Scripture, throughout this, this very same gospel that we're reading right now. He loves the world so much that he sent Jesus, he sent his son into the world to save it and to offer it life and to bring it light. Jesus loves the world. But in the moments before he went to the cross, he prays for believers. He prays for those who have obeyed and accepted and believed. And first and foremost, he prays for their protection. He asks God to protect his disciples by the power of your name. Because names are a big deal in the Bible. 
that the name of a person represented their identity. It represented their inner character, the, the wholeness of their being. And that's why back in Exodus, uh, when, when, Moses is, when God asked Moses in the burning bush to, uh, to go to Pharaoh and to, to represent him to Pharaoh, Moses asks God, what name should I tell the people, uh, you know, are you going to go by? What's, what should I tell the people who, who sent me? Uh, you know, who are you, basically, is the question he's asking God. What's your name? And the name that God revealed to Moses in Exodus is Yahweh. I am. And it's no accident that John uses this name throughout his gospel uh, on Jesus' mouth. Uh, Jesus describing himself in John's gospel. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. In, in revealing himself to his disciples, Jesus has shown God's name. Jesus shows us what God is really like. And he shows it to the world. It's accessible to anyone who wants to look. What's God like? What does he care about? We can look. And, and, and we don't have to question. We, we know. And we see it in Jesus. The power of God's name of truly knowing God, of who he is and what he wants and what he loves and and how he cares, it's the only thing that can protect the disciples who are in the world but not of the world. You hear that? That's a a Christian-y thing that we throw around all the time, right? But Jesus says it right here. It's where it comes from. And the consequence of being chosen out of the world is the way he describes his disciples, that God, you chose them out of the world the consequence of being chosen out of the world and obeying the Father, obeying the word that the Father gave Jesus, the consequence of that is that they are one with the Father, just like Jesus. They are one with the Father, just like Jesus is. They enjoy a relationship with God, unlimited access, the same way Jesus does. And so that's a pretty sweet consequence. But the other consequence is the world treats them the way the world treated Jesus because they don't belong anymore in the world. They belong to the Father. They belong to Jesus. They don't belong to the world. And, and other places throughout Scripture, Jesus casts those things as, as enemies of one another, that you can't serve both. It's the world or it's God. It's one or the other. You, you make a choice. And if your choice is to obey the word that Jesus sent, if your choice is to align yourself with the Father, uh, then you no longer belong to the world. And let me tell you, that infuriates the world. I imagine you've experienced it before. It's infuriating to the world to interact with people who don't belong to the world anymore. They don't do things the way the world does things. They don't believe the way the world believes. They they march to a a different drummer. They follow a a different leader. And, And Jesus doesn't ask the Father to spare his disciples in this environment. He doesn't ask God to take them all away, bring them all to heaven with me, you know, restore me to my place and bring them all and like, let's be done with it. His prayer isn't to take them out of the world. His prayer is that they be protected in the world, that they protected while they're here. Because Jesus doesn't want us to withdraw from the world. He doesn't want us to blend in with the world. He wants us to, to remain in the world while we also remain in him. He, he wants us to bear witness to the truth with the help of the Holy Spirit And he expects us to kind of absorb the hatred that the world throws at us, knowing that we are under the protection of God's name. 
So what can man really do? And so protection from the evil one, but it's not, the protection from the evil one is really only necessary if we stay on mission. And that's the next thing I see in this prayer that's important to Jesus. If we don't stay on mission, if we're just wandering through life, then the evil one doesn't have any reason to attack. I mean, if we're not actually following God, serving him, making him known, glorifying him the way Jesus prayed, then we don't need protection. We only need protection if we're, if we're following, if we're obeying and accepting and believing the way the disciples did. But if we're doing that, you better believe we're going to need protection from the evil one if we stay on mission. And so in verse 17, Jesus asks God to sanctify them by the truth. And then he clarifies, your word is truth. As you've sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. So sanctify. That's a churchy word. Uh, Nobody really uses that in regular life. I've never really heard people use that word in regular life, sanctify. But it it means uh, to make something holy through separation. To make something holy through separation. So God is holy due to his difference, his otherness, his transcendence compared to all the rest of creation. He is is something set apart and different and and holy. Um, And and so that's what makes God holy and, and Anything that belongs to God uh, or anything that, that serves his purposes is considered holy. It's set apart for a use that's not common. It's, it's a use that's specific and special and, 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 and different. And the process of becoming set apart to be used by God is called sanctification. And God doesn't sanctify things just for kicks, just for fun. Um, he sets things apart on purpose. He sets things apart to be used for a purpose, uh, for a mission, if you will. And the purpose of being sanctified is that we're sent out into the world. Sanctified, set apart, given a purpose so that we can be sent out into the world. Jesus' followers are set apart from the world. We're, we're reserved for God's service. How? By the truth, Jesus said. Sanctify them by the truth. What's the truth? That's a question everybody's asking, right? What's the truth? What's true? Is it your truth? Is it my truth? Jesus says your word is truth. So we can't be sanctified and set apart for God's use without learning to think like Jesus thinks, without learning to speak like Jesus speaks, without learning to act like Jesus acts. If we're not constantly seeking to live by the truth, by God's word, then we're not on mission. The church should reflect God's glory and God's love for the world because it has the words of Jesus. If the church allows its opinions to speak louder than the words Jesus gave us, then we're not on mission. The church has the truth, not not just another set of opinions. And the world should sense the strength of God's conviction when they come into contact with God's people. A people set apart to carry God's truth, not our own version of the truth, God's truth to the world around us. And so it's important to Jesus that we stay on mission. But the prayer doesn't end with staying on mission. Jesus goes on to pray for all who will believe through the message of his disciples, for us, for the church. And and so when Jesus looks forward through the years, what is the thing that weighs on his mind? What is the thing as Jesus looks forward through all the years and, 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 and thinks, okay, the church, the, you know, person after person is going to come to know me. They're going to obey and accept and believe uh, and they're going, to, they're going to attempt to live on mission. What do they need? What is important? Unity. 
And that might not be the thing that we would have prayed for in this moment, but that's what Jesus prays for looking forward, that all of them may be one. Being united is very important to Jesus. If that surprises you, you haven't been paying very close attention to the history of the church. We tend to have a unity problem. If you've spent much time reading the New Testament, you've probably noticed how many of the letters deal with this. Issues of unity, right? Theological disagreements in the church, members fighting, ethnic disputes, racial tension, leaders abusing their powers and hurting the church, people gossiping and dividing the church. The New Testament is filled with uh, verse after verse after verse of stop it, don't do that. And it's all most in the name of unity, coming together, being one. The main concerns of the New Testament letters, as I read them, are primarily keeping the truth of the gospel from getting twisted and for the church to have a unity that's modeled on the relationship of the Father and Jesus. Primarily, as I read the letters of the New Testament, Jesus is concerned with, don't let the truth, don't let my words be twisted, and don't become divided. Keep your unity. It's such a big deal for Paul that in Titus, Paul says that a divisive church member who threatens the unity of the church should be kicked out. That's pretty serious. Unity is a big, big deal. What Jesus wants, and it's so hard for us, Jesus wants for the church to have a unity that's modeled on the relationship between the Father and the Son. He, 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 it's, it, you can trace it through this entire prayer in John 17. A unity that starts with the Father and extends to the Son. Uh, the Father and the Son are united. They are one in purpose. They are one in spirit. They have the same goals. They have the same thoughts. And it extends to the disciples in God where Jesus says, I want, I want them to be one with you the same way I am one with you. And then it extends and finishes with the believers to God, yes, but also to one another. This unity extends that, that Jesus wants us to have the relationship with God that he had, but he also wants us to have a relationship with one another the way he had a relationship with God. That's why when we read 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, we read it at weddings and stuff, right? But it's not about marriage. I mean, it is, but it's not only about marriage. Paul wrote that about the way people in the church should treat one another. Love is patient. Love is kind. It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. It isn't proud. It isn't rude. It isn't self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. This is stuff that Paul expects us to do as we relate to one another in the church, that the oneness that we experience in Jesus should lead to a oneness that we experience with each other. Because for Jesus, unity is a spiritual issue. And unity only comes when we seek God together. And that's why this is so important. That's why church is so important. We can't live up to this goal that Jesus has for us on our own. You can't be one with people you refuse to be around. So unity in the church is supposed to be visible to the world. Our unity affects our mission. When we're in total unity, Jesus says that the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you've loved me. What does unity look like? Well, Chuck Swindoll clarifies that it's not union or uniformity or unanimity. He says union has an affiliation with others, but no common bond that makes them one in heart. Uniformity has everyone looking and thinking alike. Unanimity is complete agreement across the board. Unity, however, refers to a oneness of heart, a similarity of purpose, and an agreement on major points of doctrine. 
Unity is the way we display the gospel to the world. It's not that we sacrifice everything to the lowest common denominator just so that we all agree on every single point and opinion in life. It's that we are one in purpose. It's that we are, we're pulling in the same direction. We're, that, that we're all moving toward Jesus. And it's pretty obvious to anyone that looks at us that that's what we're doing. We're doing it together. So I want you to think about the world we live in right now. How radical an idea is unity in the world that we live in? A place where we don't just agree to coexist. You've seen the bumper sticker, right? Coexist, put up with everybody. That's, I mean, I'm, that, don't hear me, that's good. I mean, that's better than not putting up with everybody, right? So coexist, put up with everybody, but it's gotta be more than that. Unity's gotta be more than just put up with everybody and let everybody go do their own thing, right? Not just coexist, but a place where we actually love one another in spite of our differences. We don't make everyone like, conform to being exactly the way I am. You don't have to look like me, you don't have to think like me. The things that are important to you and the things that are important to me can be different but, and we can still have unity. A place when we value our opinions and, and uh, when we, I'm sorry, when we value our opinions and our preferences and our points of view more than we value each other, that hurts the mission. It hurts the mission. When we value our opinions and our preferences and our points of view more than we value each other, it hurts the mission. We fail to show the world what it's like to live in the kingdom of God. Your preference for different music is not more important than unity. Your anger at what someone told you that someone else said about you is not more important than unity. Your disagreement about the way things are done in a certain ministry in the church is not more important than unity. If we don't value unity the way Jesus did, it won't matter how amazing we are at teaching the Bible or at organizing events or at leading music or at raising money for missions around the world. We can't further the mission without unity in the church. Can't do it. And not by compromising the truth of the gospel. Jesus holds these two things up equally. We don't, we don't find unity by compromising the truth in order to find common ground, but we find it by committing to live by the gospel together, whatever that looks like. Figuring it out together by showing love that values others above ourselves, by depending on God for our guidance and our hope. And in the moments before the cross, this is what Jesus prayed. He prayed for the things that were important to him. He prayed for God to be glorified and he prayed for us. He prayed for our protection from evil, uh, from the evil one and from hatred in the world. He prayed for our sanctification to be used by God to accomplish his mission in the world. And he prayed for our unity with one another to demonstrate God's love to the world. And as we face the uncertain road, there's another thing that's important to Jesus that I think we can miss as we walk through this. And it's prayer. I mean, he doesn't talk about prayer in his prayer, but the fact that he prays in this moment in this moment where the disciples' hearts were troubled and their future seemed uncertain, in this moment when Jesus himself was in anguish, the other gospels tell us, and, uh, anguish about his future as he headed to the cross. Not indecision, but just anguish about his future. He decided to pray. This is what he did in this moment. Because the most effective thing we can do for our unity and our mission and our protection and for, and for God's glory among us is to pray. During this moment, during this, during, throughout his own ministry, actually, when Jesus looked over the crowds, uh, he told his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send workers into his harvest field. And the first thing Jesus tells us to do when, when we face the enormous mission of the church is to pray. 
And I don't know about you, but that's not my instinct. When I see a big need, when I see an enormous task, a huge mission, my instinct is to start making plans and start building teams and to start making lists and to start assigning work, right? Because we got all this work that needs done. I, I, I spin my wheels and it makes me feel important. But in the end, it's just spinning wheels. It's just keeping the plates moving, right? Without prayer, it's just keeping the plates up. If we're going to make the things that were important to Jesus, important to us, prayer is where we have to start. Has to be. And so every week, we take time at the end of our service by taking communion together. It's like Jesus did when he went to God in prayer. We want to press pause. We want to press pause on the concerns of our life that that press in on us, and, and we want to spend time with the Father, the way Jesus did. And so this morning, as you take time to reflect, think about uh, one of the things that was important to Jesus as, as you go to him in prayer. You might, maybe you pray for God to be glorified in your life or maybe for God's protection in a world that can be pretty hostile. Maybe you'll pray for your role in God's mission and the ways that God's preparing you for it or maybe God is gonna bring to mind a relationship in your life where unity needs to be restored. I hate it when he does that, but he does it. And so maybe that's what'll happen as you spend time reflecting Uh, this morning in prayer. So I'm going to pray, and then I want to leave a little bit of time, a little bit of silence uh, for you to reflect uh, before we take communion together. So let me pray. Father, man, I just want to thank you that Jesus' prayer was not a private moment, um, but, but that Jesus prayed in a way that we could get a glimpse of what's important to him, a glimpse of who you are. And Father, I just pray that you would help us to keep the things that are important to your son important in his church. Father, I pray that we would bring you glory. I pray for your protection as we, as we carry your mission into the world. I pray that we stay on mission, that we don't get distracted, that we, we, we stay focused on your kingdom. And Father, I pray for unity. I pray that we would be one the way you are one with your son, Jesus. Father, we can pray all these things through your son, Jesus, in his name because we know that those things are important to him. And we know the promise that, that if we pray in Jesus' name and lift up the things that are important to him, you'll answer. And so, Father, we want to pray what Jesus prayed. The things that are important to Jesus, Lord, make them important to us. Thank you for the cross and for what it means in our lives. Thank you that Jesus took our sins, bore them to you so that we uh, can, can, can be forgiven, that we can live on mission, and we can have unity. And Father, thank you that Jesus didn't stay dead but rose again. It's in his name.